0: We've been going through this little mini section here in Colossians. It's its own paragraph in my Bible. It's labeled Rules for Christian Households. And it's been giving instructions to sort of all different categories of people. So we've seen instructions for husbands and wives, for children, and for fathers, by which we understand parents. Uh, And now, this last section that we're looking at today is instructions for slaves and for their masters. And so, I'm sure we all knew this was coming, we've been reading this passage before each of the sermons the last several weeks, and so, here it is. We get to this today and it, it seems like there's a bit of an elephant in the room anytime we look at one of these passages, and there are many passages in the Bible. We saw some of them in Exodus, we've seen some of the New Testament passages before that either talk somehow about slavery or like this one, are actually speaking two slaves or, or possibly bond servants, household servants, uh, that are living in the households of believers. And there's this elephant in the room as, as we know that this is a controversial issue and we want to, to discern what does the Bible have to say about the issue of slavery? Why does it say what it does rather than perhaps what it doesn't say that we might think it should say? Well, the reality is we're just going to kind of set that issue aside for the day so that we can focus on what the passage actually does say to us because I think this is a wonderful passage. I think it says a lot to us. I think it has instructions for us. I think that, that the Lord can really speak a lot to us from a passage like this uh, so long as we don't get distracted. And that is not at all to say that those questions are somehow unimportant or not worthy of consideration. They are very important is just to say that that's not where we're going today. There's too much other good stuff in these verses for us to focus on that I don't want us to, to get too badly sidetracked. <clears throat> this passage presses a question on us. Why do you work? Why? Why, why do you go to the job that you go to? Or uh, perhaps, let's broaden this, because I'm not speaking only to those who actually work outside the home in some employment but whatever your calling may be we can speak to homemakers why do you do that? what you do in that calling that vocation that God has given you or volunteers even to students right? if you're a student you may not think well I don't, I don't work yet I'm not in the workforce yet I'm, I'm, I'm in school but this is still a passage that speaks to you that you have a calling from God on your life right now and your calling is to be a student to give yourself to that vocation. So why do we do it? I think there's a lot of different answers that I imagine we might give, many of which would be very good answers. Some might be questionable, but I think that as we read and study this passage, that these verses challenge us to rethink the relationship we have with our work. That we have a relationship with our work, whether for better or for worse, and this passage, these verses Challenge us to think about what that is. I want to read these verses to us, so I'm going to read again this whole paragraph from 3:18 through 4:1. And so, let me ask you: Would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's holy word today? <clears throat> Colossians 3, starting in verse 18. Lord, you are our Heavenly Father, you are our Lord and our Master. We pray now that as we give ourselves to the reading and to the study of your Word, that you would help us, that you would give us your Spirit to guide us and to be our teacher. Lord, that we might hear these passages, see them, read them, and that we might understand them, and even most of all, Lord, may we take them truly to heart, and may we begin to obey them. May we give our lives to them. May we submit ourselves and bow the knee of our heart to them. Lord, may they be our guide, we pray, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So what we've said is that as Paul is going through this passage, he's addressed several different groups of people. He's talking to the different ages and stages the different callings that people have on their lives, husbands, wives, parents, children. And now he comes to servants and masters. So in one sense, there's nothing at all surprising about this. Paul is just working his way through the different life situations of all the people in his congregation. There are these households that have become believers that are part of the church, and Paul is systematically going through them, and he is applying the gospel to each different situation. Right? Uh, all all callings, whatever they are, each person, all come under this umbrella, right, that that the gospel applies to their calling in life, whatever that may be. This is still part of chapter 3, right, that starts with this great exclamation, if then you have been raised with Christ. And so he's going to apply that. You know, what does it mean if you're a husband who's been raised with Christ? What does it mean if you're a wife, if you're a child, if you're a parent who's been raised with Christ? And now he's got, there are, there are these slaves in the congregation, and so he addresses them as well. He's simply working his way sort of systematically through the different pe- people who are in the congregation. And he addresses each of them really in the same way. Right? He's applying the gospel to each of their situations. Slaves in the church who have become believers are dealt with now by applying the gospel to their situation, just as he did for all the other categories of people. And that doesn't surprise us, right? We know that the gospel, when it when it comes into someone's life and their life is then transformed, that the gospel changes them. The gospel changes everything for them, how they relate to God, how they relate to people, and how they relate also to the callings that God has put on their lives. They find themselves in a very particular life setting. And if they believe the gospel, then it has applications. Paul is applying the gospel to all the different people in the church and the settings of life that they find themselves in. And that is, is interesting in particular here, isn't it? Right, there, There's plenty of people who would suggest that, that a verse like Galatians 3.28 sort of is is the verse that redefines everything in the church. That's where he says, In Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, no slave or free, no uh, male or female. Right, it, it seems to wipe out all the distinctions. But in fact, it, it changes the distinctions without necessarily wiping them out because we read in Galatians just like we read in Colossians that Paul will still give individual specific instructions to to husbands and to wives, right? He can say that in Christ, and this is what we've said as well, that in Christ, yes, there is equality. Uh, We are equal in value in worth in dignity. We come to Christ on equal footing. There is no partiality. Uh, But nevertheless, we have callings from God that are unique, And that influenced the way that we live out our uh, commitment to Christ. It was the same with male and female, even Colossians. Colossians 3.11, just a little ways up, says, there is in Christ no slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. But we get down here and now Paul is again addressing himself to those who are slaves and to those who are masters, recognizing that because of the, the vocation that they find themselves in, although they come to Christ equally, that both slave and master are brothers in Christ or sisters in Christ. Nevertheless, the particular vocation that they have influences how they live for Christ within that vocation. So <clears throat> equal, just like we've said, and we said this over and over in, in the sermons on marriage, that, that male and female are equal in value, worth, and dignity, but have different callings, I think we could apply the same uh, the same kind of rubric to slaves and masters, that they are equal. They're equal before Christ. Uh, They come to Christ on equal footing, but they have different callings in life, different vocations the Lord has given them. And the gospel changes the way we pursue and approach the vocations that God has given us. So I want us to read these verses today and, and think not only about what it means for people who are actual slaves in that context, but to think about the jobs and the vocations that God has given us and how the gospel changes the way that we do those things. And and I think it it tells us at least two things about our work. It tells us that our work is a worthy and a noble calling. The work that God has given us is a worthy and a noble calling. Second, that our work can be worship. And then at the end, I want to, to, to try to help. How do we approach our work as worship. But let's note a few preliminary observations here. It's it's worth just paying attention to some of the obvious things that that we might move over too quickly. But notice, Paul addresses himself to slaves. To those who are under the yoke of slavery, (coughs) Paul addresses himself very specifically in this letter. (coughs) In fact... If we're just looking at the the section that we read, there is more verses written to the slaves than there are to any other category of people. He has more to say and more encouragement to give to them. Throughout the New Testament, there are many places where, where the responsibilities of Christian slaves are addressed. and And Paul actually addresses them as responsible, mature, believing Christians, who are part of the church, who have responsibilities to the Lord, who can hear the word of the Lord and obey it? Right, so there's no, there's no uh, pandering. There's no patronizing of them. There's, there's not sort of a free pass given to slaves because they find themselves in a very undesirable circumstance because they have a difficult situation in life. There's no, there's, there's no letting them off the hook. But rather, Paul addresses them and he speaks to them simply, you know, adult to adult as a responsible uh, Christian person who is responsible to follow Christ, right? who has their own path of discipleship laid out before them, that they are going to believe in Christ and to obey Christ just like everyone else, even though their particular state may mean certain unique challenges, certain unique difficulties. But that's true for all of us, isn't it? But they are nevertheless addressed as responsible believing Christians. And here's the second preliminary observation i think first of all you know that gives a lot of dignity to them but not only does he dignify the work that they do but he goes even further and we hear in these verses that he says if they do their work well that they are giving honor to god that they are adorning the doctrine of the gospel of jesus christ and he says even further that they will therefore receive the inheritance as a reward from the lord So so we hear how he speaks to them. You know, it's almost as though their calling in life is is secondary, whatever it is. Yes, we look on that calling as being one of the worst. Paul simply says, listen, you have a calling from the Lord in your work. And if you do it well, you give glory to God. God is honored and you receive the inheritance as a reward. Here's these people that are, are constantly looked down on by society. They are marginalized. They are neglected by the law. Uh, But Paul gives them dignity and nobility, even honoring the work that they do, saying they are, in their calling, doing work that can be God-honoring and Christ-exalting work. I mean, what more could anyone ask for out of the work that they do in life? This is a noble calling, then, that they have. And so we see that these are are people who should not be having a, a pity party. They should not be simply resigning themselves to surviving until they can gain their freedom, Paul says to them, you are to work as working unto the Lord. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving. And they will receive from the Lord the inheritance as a reward. Right? Think what that would have meant to them to hear words like that addressed to them in their particular situation. And then think how, how easy it is and how tempted we often are to complain about the work that we do. To complain that perhaps our job is not as rewarding as we wish that it were. Or to complain that we're not being compensated quite as well as we wish that we could be. And we think, what is it all for? Why do do I do this? Well, here Paul is speaking to people whose work is is probably not very rewarding. It's not compensating them well. But here is what he says. You will receive the inheritance from the Lord as the reward. And you honor Christ when you do your work well. Here's something that he gives them that's far better than, than any paycheck that we can hope for. He gives them the dignity and the, and the spiritual worth and value that they are serving the Lord in the work that they do. If we think about the position, you know, the, just the societal standing of these slaves, they did not have an earthly inheritance to look forward to. And they, they certainly would not have had an inheritance from their own family. If their family was wealthy enough to have an inheritance, no doubt they wouldn't have been indentured servants. They wouldn't receive an inheritance from the family that they, they were working for. The inheritance goes to the children, not to the hired help. But they will receive one from the Lord. I think that's worth thinking about for us. And, and applying to us as well it might be that some of us are not working in the jobs that we would like to be working in. Maybe we're working in a a job that we see as temporary, hopefully until we can gain what what we're really dreaming about. Maybe you're in the position that whenever someone asks you what you do, you answer, but you also are quick to qualify, like, oh, what I really want to do is this. I I was in that position for a long time. When Aubrey was in medical school, I worked at a bank by day, and I waited tables by night. And if you were to ask me then what I did, well, I'd say, well, I work at a bank. But that's not really what I'm going to do. And, what I'm re- and this was after I'd been to seminary. I said, well, I'm really, I really want to be a pastor. All right? And I didn't like the job I was in. I, it wasn't rewarding. And you may be, you know, L.A. is filled with people like that, feel like their life is on hold. But you know what the Bible says about that? Nothing. It doesn't matter. Right? That's not the point. The Bible doesn't care about our, our dream jobs. It cares about the work that God has given us to do today. And here is Paul saying to these slaves who are the lowest of any conceivable economic ladder, he says, if you do your work well, you are working for the Lord. And God is honored by that good work. What more are we hoping for out of our jobs? Than to honor God. Right? Perhaps we wish we were honoring God in a better, more glamorous job, but that's not the call that he gives us. Right? Some may be, may be in a position right now where maybe you're staying home with the kids and that's not what you wish you were doing. Right? We talk about slavery and you say, I, you know, I kind of resonate with that. Just kidding. But that's a noble calling. Right? I think that's one of the highest, most noble callings is, is to raise children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And that is the calling. If your job feels ever so mundane, so underappreciated, so unfulfilling, God says you work as unto the Lord, not as unto your job. Look at verse 22. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Your earthly masters. Now, to hear Paul say this, here's the word, the first word is, you are to obey your masters. We might think that's a surprising word, right? Maybe that's not what we would have said if we were writing it. But but again, notice that he's not patronizing. Right? He's, he's not pandering to them. He's giving them the, the Lord's word. And their word is, first, they should obey. <clears throat> In one sense, of course, that's <coughs> that is what every Christian is called to, is it not? Right? To do our job with diligence, as unto the Lord, to obey those who are in authority over us, to outdo one another in showing honor. Right? This has been the word to, to wives and husbands, that they are to treat each other with honor and respect. To, to children, they're to obey their parents. Right? This is this is the word of the Lord to all of us. And perhaps we could even say that being in a, a bad job or a less than ideal job or a job we don't like is is no reason for a bad attitude or sloppy work. He says, slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And no doubt there were some who, who would have been tempted to say back to Paul, yes, Paul, that sounds great. You don't know my master. You do not know my boss. You do not know how hard it is. First uh, Peter, in another one of these household codes, when Peter is addressing those who are under the yoke as slaves, 1 Peter 2.18 is perhaps an even more surprising uh, and honest word. It says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, and then listen to this, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. He goes on, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it, if when you sin and are beaten, you endure, But if when you do good and suffer, and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Here he is very explicit that we are not merely to do good, uh, diligent, honest work in our callings when we like it, and when the boss makes it easy for us, but even more so when we don't like it, and when the boss makes it very difficult for us. And he says here is a noble and a gracious thing in the sight of God. Why? Because you're following the example set by no one other than Jesus Christ. That he obeyed masters who were over him, who were the ultimate unjust masters. And he says he has left us an example. And we are to rejoice then that we even have communion with Christ in hard work. Unkind work. Laboring for an uh, A dishonest and unfair boss and the word stands out to me in Colossians in verse 22 where it says slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters your earthly masters why? because your earthly master is only one of your masters right? he says we are to recognize that there is a chain of command that goes all the way up that you have a heavenly master as well And so we're called to do a good job in our work, to work well and honestly and diligently so that God may be honored, so that the name of the Lord may not be reviled. Even those who are under the yoke, they, they were still to see themselves as ambassadors for Christ, as those who are called to work for Christ. And therefore their work reflected not on themselves, not on their earthly master, but on Christ. See, this is how we are, are called to see our own jobs, as all of our callings are working for Christ. I want to, to read something. I've read this before. This is John MacArthur said this, <clears throat> and, and perhaps he goes even a, a little further than I would want to go, but he says, he says, What is happening on the job for you is the single greatest articulation of Christianity that you will ever have in your lifetime. He says, what is going on on the job for you is the single greatest articulation of Christianity that you will ever have in your lifetime. Maybe a little of an overstatement, but think about it. We spend 40 hours, give or take, maybe give a lot more. We spend 40 hours a week working the jobs that God has given us. And those are not 40 hours where we are sort of setting aside all of our personal convictions in order to simply earn a paycheck for that time. He says, what we do in those 40 hours... Here is the calling that we have. We often define ourselves a lot by the work that we do, right? This is important to us. This matters. He says, that is your greatest opportunity to demonstrate your Christian convictions that you have in your life. And there's a whole lot of truth in that to say that who we are, you know, deep down, it's not who we are when we come to church and and we pretend that that we're doing well and we have it together and, and we're great. What about when we're on the job? What about when we feel that no one respects us, we're not valued for what we do? It's not what we want to do. It's not feeling rewarding. The way we can behave in those circumstances is a far greater articulation of what our Christianity truly means to us. He says the greatest articulation that we would have. I want to look at another passage. There's so many interesting passages in the, the New Testament that speak to slaves. Look at Titus 2, 9. Titus nine, he says, Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And the the instruction is similar, that they are to obey their earthly masters in everything, but the, the reason he gives at the end, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Here is the great dignity that God gives to the work that we do. That when we do our work well, we are adorning the doctrine of the gospel of God our Savior. And that applies, you know, here he's applying that to work that nobody looks highly on. That is simply looked down on, feared, and despised. And he says, to do that work well adorns the doctrine of God our Savior. So we, we can simply reason from that to any other calling, whether your calling would be you know, a doctor, a lawyer, a diplomat, or a bus driver, or a domestic engineer, or a janitor. It makes no difference whatsoever. The dignity of your work is not in the size of your paycheck. The dignity of your work is not in what the world says about the job that you do. The dignity of your work is that when you do it well, when you work as unto the Lord, that you may then adorn the doctrine of God our Savior through working for the Lord and not for men. That's the dignity of our work. right? We, we need to, to figure out how to set aside all of these earthly perspectives that accumulate over the work that we do. We are so used to hearing the world make pronouncements as to what jobs, are worthwhile and which ones are simply embarrassing to have and to, to wipe all that away and say the dignity of our work comes not from any worldly pronouncements it comes from what the lord says is true about our work and what possibilities he leaves open for us to be a witness by our work and adorn the doctrine of jesus what more dignity could our work have now we see our work as a worthy calling. It's also, we can go further than that and say that our work is, in fact, an act of worship. Our work can be an act of worship. And this may be a new thought for some. You know, we're so used to kind of pigeonholing uh, different areas of life. We have our, our work over here, our worship, our family life. Our work is meant to be an act of worship. right? All of life can be an act of worship as done unto the Lord. Right? The commands, again, we, we've seen that these commands in these verses are striking to, to work hard. It's easy to see how it would have been an opposite temptation for these slaves. Right? Perhaps to see that you know, the gospel has given them great dignity, therefore you know, they're above this low calling in line. Or to, to think that you know, my master doesn't treat me well, therefore I won't treat him well with hard work. But the calling of all of this is that your work is... Uh, reflective of God, not your own master or your calling itself. And It points to the fact that all work, even the unpleasant work, is done for the Lord to honor Christ, to adorn the gospel. Again, this is all teaching us a very high view of the work that God has given us to do. Right, that we work not simply for the sake of putting you know food on the table, paying the bills, you know, getting the paycheck, trying to secure a retirement someday. That's not why we work. We go to work because God has called us to it and gives us the opportunity to worship him through it. And so if that is true, how then should we work? And here's what Paul says. Verse 22, just picking it up halfway through, where he says, here's how you work, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ over and over and over. The dignity of your work comes from the fact that you work for the Lord. You work for the Lord, and he's saying this, most surprisingly perhaps, to those who are on the lowest rung of the economic ladder, most undesirable work possible, and he says, actually... They're working for the Lord in that calling that they have. And therefore their work has all the significance, it has all the, the dignity, it has all the profundity of any other job in all creation. And we are we are not given the permission then to look down on certain callings, to look to, to decide for ourselves that some work is beneath us. Paul didn't have that perspective. And neither does he have this perspective that is easy for us to have that. You know, that there's secular work and there's sacred work, right? And that there's certain people, there's, you know, pastors, missionaries, evangelists that are serving the Lord in their work. But, but for everybody else, you know, you work in the secular world, you're just working, right? They're serving the Lord, you're just working. This, this divide that we have between the sacred and the secular, but the Bible knows of no such distinction like that. Regardless of the field that you labor in or how well it pays, He's, Paul says, listen, you are serving the Lord Christ. Your work is sacred work. Your work, whatever work it is, is sacred work. <clears throat> now second, he also gives a word to the masters. Right, They are serving the Lord and therefore they are to treat the, the slaves in their employ with justice and fairness, knowing that they too have a master in heaven. Again, they they also are to remember that the chain of command goes all the way up. That they are merely an earthly master. And that even for them, again, their work is a reflection of their faith. If they are believing masters, their work is an act of worship. And therefore, they are to treat the people under them in their employ with dignity and with respect, with justice and with fairness. They do, in fact, wield a bit of authority, but they are to remember they are not the boss. Jesus is. And therefore, they use the authority, that, authority that's been committed to them to work well and justly and fairly. Which means for us, some of you have authority in your workplace. You know, maybe you have some people who report to you who are under your oversight, like a teacher over her students or a boss over their employees or even the parent over the children. And in that respect, you are to consider that you are working for the Lord that your authority is part of working for Jesus. So if that's the big picture, how can we take our own callings that we have and, and approach them as though they are worship? Here's a few suggestions. Number one, we are at all times in our callings to remember who is the boss. To remember who is the boss. As Paul says, we are working as for the Lord. And that is True. Whether your particular boss at work is good and kind and you, you enjoy their company and you love working for them and you're in a great situation, or if your particular boss is mean and kind of a jerk, it doesn't matter. Paul says you are working for the Lord. Now, how can we actually do that? How can we approach it as working for the Lord if, if you don't you know have a lot of joy, if you don't have a good boss? And, and I think the reality is that we must approach our work with the gospel. We must approach our work with the gospel because only the, the gospel can free us from all of the burdens that we carry into our work. And, and we carry burdens such as the need to find uh, our identity in what we do or the need to find a sense of meaning and a sense of significance, a sense of purpose, you know, to find joy with a capital J, to find life with a capital L, Right? oftentimes this is what we do is, is we expect that our work is going to provide all of these things for us. And it never will. Right? It, it can't. It, we're simply taking far too great of expectations as to what we, is even possible for us to get out of our work and placing this great burden on our work to, to give us a sense of purpose in life, to define who we are, to make us a person who has meaning and who has worth and and who has value. And our work can simply never, ever do any of that. At least not in any significant, real, lasting sort of way. Right? I mean, hopefully our our work is meaningful and hopefully it does give us a sense of of purpose and joy in doing it. But uh, what happens essentially is, and this is very common in a place like L.A. where, where everyone is working hard, right? We're trying to make it. What do we do? We end up turning our work into an idol. Right, we end up t- taking the work that we have and, and we look to it then as an idol and that means your work essentially is your functional savior. When you are expecting the work that you do to be the one thing that gives your life meaning, right, that keeps you out of despair, well, at that point your work is simply an idol that, that is a functional savior. And the irony of it is that the more we turn work into an idol, the more frustrating it becomes which is sort of unexpected. You'd think, you'd think that means you would you'd treat it well and you'd <coughs> work harder for it and, and you know, really give yourself. But it actually just becomes more frustrating <coughs> because we're asking our, our work to then provide us with something it was never meant to do. Right? And so we end up feeling like, well, our, our work is demeaning unless we're actually being paid what we think we ought to be paid. Or our work is embarrassing unless it's something that's actually in line with my passions or unless I'm making a big, public, visible difference in the world. And so we end up feeling ashamed most of the time that we're stuck in some kind of small-time gig. Right? We think we deserve better. We think we must have better. We're embarrassed to tell people what we really do because that's not flashy enough. Right? We see work as the thing that is supposed to make us worthy of love, the thing that's going to validate our existence. And when we put that kind of pressure on any job, right, of course it's going to let us down and we end up feeling depressed, discouraged. Or you end up not working hard, right? Because you're, you're constantly daydreaming about the job you wish you had and the meaning you wish it could give to you and the life that you think you should be living, but but you're upset that you're not. Work and money will never be enough if we're expecting them to be everything. They simply can't fulfill uh, that kind of expectation, anytime you're working in a a poorly paying job, isn't it easy to think that, you know what, if I could just get a raise, if I just got a promotion, if I could just get discovered, everything would be okay, I'll be happy. But you won't be. You'll you'll be slightly richer and just as discontent. For for example, think of Le'Veon Bell. I know at least two people in here know that name. He's a football player, kind of, Right? He has a contract to play with the Pittsburgh Steelers, but he's not playing. He's not playing because he was very upset about the fact that they were only going to pay him $15 million this year. And, and he was insulted by that. Who wouldn't be? right? And so he, he took his ball and he went home. And he hasn't, he hasn't gone to work at all this year. Right? Because, because that's insulting. right? That's embarrassing to admit that you work for that. So he's just not playing. He just hasn't showed up to any of the games yet. Well, we're not there. I mean, we don't get that salary. We are there. We don't get that same salary, right? But, but we see that his heart is really just like most of ours, right? He's embarrassed because he's not, you know, he's not getting life and joy and meaning and dignity and worth and value that he expects his job to provide for him. Well, that's the human situation. Thankfully, the word of God simply ratchets everything way down for us and speaks to us where we are. And here Paul is speaking not to to professional athletes who are all over TV and heroes and all this. He's speaking to slaves. And the word to slaves is you are working for the Lord. You have dignity in the calling that you have. You are working to receive the inheritance from the Lord as your reward. Right? You know why it's so easy for us to turn work into an idol? I think the reality is it's easy because work is such a good thing, right? We don't make idols out of bad things that we don't like. We make idols out of the good things. And work is a good thing. It's a gift from God. We could go back to to Genesis and see that that work was a gift that was given before the fall. So it's not a result of the fall that we now have to work. Uh, Yes, the fall has changed work and made it frustrating, but work itself is part of what it means to be created in the image of God. That God is a creative God and we're in his image. And therefore, God has given us the noble calling of of tending to and protecting and caring for his creation, the calling of cultivating it, filling it with the beautiful artifacts of, of culture, organizing it, giving glory to God through the work that we do. Our work is good. It's meant to be good. But it's never meant to be an ultimate thing. It's never meant to be the thing that defines who we are and gives us life. And only the gospel can free us from that kind of idolatry. Only the gospel frees us from the weight of those expectations that we put on our work and allows us then to work as unto the Lord in whatever the job may be, regardless of how much you like it or don't like it. Because you find life and joy and meaning and significance and happiness in Jesus. And when you have that, there, there is an actual freedom that comes <clears throat> to glorify God in your work. For example, Jesus says uh, in Matthew, he says, Come to me, all ye who are, heavy, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What does that mean? That Jesus says if we come to him, he'll give us rest. I, I think it's easy oftentimes to, for us to hear that and to think, okay, that means that Jesus is somehow refreshing our soul, even in the midst of our chaos, Right? And life is just as, as as wearisome and busy and chaotic, but there's a soul refreshment. And that's true, Jesus does that. But I think there's, there's even a, a more practical, physical, down-to-earth reality to this rest. That he says when we come to him and we find the gift of life, that we have in Christ all that we need, that we actually find rest because we're, we are unburdened From all of these expectations, these idolatries that we put on other parts of life. And when we stop burdening our work with these idolatrous expectations, we do rest much more, don't we? Don't we find a greater rest in this idea that, you know what, I can can simply embrace my my job as one more area of life in which I can give myself to work hard for the sake of pleasing God and honoring Jesus. And I don't have to to have all of these cares that it be good enough that it be meaningful enough. Because all of my meaning is from Christ. And therefore, the rest of life, I'm, I'm free to rest in that. We're free to rest in that. We need the gospel, though, to free us from our, our job idolatry and from any other idolatry. <coughs> that was all under remembering the boss. We also need to remember the purpose. What's the purpose of your job? Paul tells us it is to honor God. You work as unto the Lord. The purpose of your job is not to define who you are. Right? We remember the purpose, we remember the power. Remember the power. Only someone who knows and loves Jesus can work like this. Right? Otherwise, this just becomes one more expectation that we place on our work. But only someone who is resting first in Jesus, who is the master, who is worthy of our ultimate respect and honor, And yet he became the slave to me. Here's the master who who became the slave, who humbled himself, took the form of a man and and became a a servant, became obedient to death. Has any slave ever had it even worse? No. Jesus is our master who became a slave on our behalf, who was treated with the utmost contempt, who was spit on, who was beaten, the utmost derision in order that we <coughs> who who, who, find, who feel ourselves insignificant who feel like slaves in order that, that those who humble themselves might be exalted that we might be lifted up in Christ that we who are slaves to sin might be set free and in being free might know what it is to work in a way that is made new by Christ to work in a way that's not focused on self-promotion but on gospel adornment. No longer we work to become something we're not, but in order to express who Christ says we already are. Not to work in order to validate my own worth, but to point to the worth of Christ, who graciously graciously accepts our work as worship. We don't need to go to work and say, "Well, you know, I'll read the Bible later, I'll pray later. I just I got to get this done." You no, the work is our, a form of our worship, right? To the extent that we work as unto the Lord, the Lord receives that as an act of worship. <clears throat> I think we all are so familiar with the fact that, you know, we start with a question like, why do we work? And, and we know all of the wrong reasons because we regularly live them out, I think. We, we're familiar with those. We, you know, work for self-redemption, right? Hoping that we can make something of ourselves. It's a grasp for power or success or for money. Paul says, if we can rest first in Christ, then work, we get rid of all of these bad things and there's this ultimate uh, validation of what we do that our work is a form of our worship. And that's not dependent on the job. Whatever God has called us to do, we worship as we work for the Lord, not for men. And we only do that when we know Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. You are a good and loving God. You are kind to all that you have made. We thank you that you love us even when we sin, even when we disobey. You care for us. Uh, You come after us. You pursue us. You walk with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, trust it on our lives today. Lord, help us to, to hear these words. Help us to take them to heart. Help us to live them out in practice this week. So Lord, we, we uh, thank you for the privilege that we are yours. Sons and daughters, through Christ, it's in his name that we pray. Amen.